the book, and, and many of you have not. So, um, but I'm getting a few nods, which means there may be some of you who could seed some questions afterwards, right? If I, if I talk for about 15, 20 minutes on some, some themes from the book for those of you who have not heard of it. But you do have to do a little work. I'm going to find out how biblically literate you are in a minute. So if that makes you anxious, you might start thinking right now about remarkable stories from the First or Second Testament that could only have happened in the dark, okay? Fabulous stories, if not fun stories, important stories that could only have happened in the dark. Um, so my topic is loosely the topic of the book, though when you read a book like Learning to Walk in the Dark, you think one of two things. Why would anybody want to do that? Or you think, oh, I've been doing that all my life, so I think I'll check into this book and see what's going on here. It's not until perhaps three-quarters of the way through that you... you um, get an idea that darkness might not only be what it is for many or most of us, which is terrifying, um, but also there's the possibility that it is dazzling um, and that the great mystics of the church were not wrong when they said that the ascent to God often ends up in the same dark cloud that Moses found himself in at the top of Mount Sinai, where he was both most present to and with God and also least able to say anything about God that made any sense at all because of the density of that cloud. So there I've already filled out one thing on the biblical literacy list. That's um, Moses in the dark cloud. But I would like to talk about this dazzling darkness um, as the kind of um, divine dark in which God does some of God's best work. I, I think the reasons that you don't hear much about it in churches and I have thought a lot about this, is because churches privilege what you might call a full solar spirituality. And it's for really good reasons. Um, to read the New Testament, especially the Gospel of John, which is coming up in my Gospel class next week, you just can't miss the duality, the dichotomy between light and dark. It's children of light versus children of darkness. If you are in darkness, you are blind, you're ignorant, you're evil, you're sinful. Um, the stories in that Gospel in particular, which is not only one of the most beautiful Gospels, but many people's favorites, is not kind to darkness. That's a reason. I think if you're Christian, you've been schooled a lot in um, the kind of Christianity, frankly, that fell in love with Greek philosophy early on and really loved dualisms, you know, ways in which reality is divided in two parts, which is not very Jewish. Think Isaiah 45, I create wheel and I create woe, says the Lord. I create light and I create darkness. There's no duality there. Um, but I also think we've got a kind of innate fear of the dark. Uh, I, I'm going to use darkness for the whole time as a metaphor, and I have no idea what your handle on that metaphor is. A guy came up to me at a book reading three weeks ago and said I almost made him break his ankle. And I said, how did I do that? And he said, well, you told me to go for a walk in the dark, and I did. And I <laughs> said I fell right in a ditch, and I had to wear a thing on my leg. And I said, well, next time I'll include a little instruction list on how to handle a metaphor, because you, you clearly are a, a literal-minded thinker. Um, but I have as much apprehension about darkness as anybody, so I've thought a lot. That didn't all come from the Gospel of John, believe me. It came from the darkness I experienced as a child, both sacred and terrifying. Um, it came, I think, from my DNA. You know, I've got an idea. We live when these things we take for granted, but they've only been around a little over 100 years, so that humankind lived a lot of time in the dark where it was easy to step on snakes and fall off cliffs and be attacked by enemies. So I think also a lot of, of scriptures 
um, admonitions against darkness have to do with a literal time in which darkness was a dangerous time for people, and you prayed very much for the light. Um, they, those associations have unfortunate connotations. If you're in the Gospel of John, for people who are sight-impaired. If you're anywhere else, for people um, of, uh, who have darker skin than others and who have listened to the language of darkness being equated with badness, um, unintentionally thudding into them like cannonballs. So lots more we can talk about afterwards. Uh, the problem, I think, with um, deciding to steer away from darkness every chance you get, or failing that, to illuminate it artificially any chance you get, is that um, you might ignore the place where transformation is most likely, if only because we are least defended there for good and ill. So um, if you have any nominees, I, I'll, I'll roll you on my list of nominees of things, at least in the scriptures this group has been encouraged to call sacred, uh, starts with the beginning of creation, which happens in the dark. We're told God creates out of nothing, and yet Genesis 1-1 says darkness was already there. Metaphorically, whatever that means, we're encouraged again to think of it as chaos, right? That God makes order out of. I've noticed also a lot of people when God names the day and separates it from the night and calls the day good, people put words in God's mouth and say, therefore night must be bad. But the text doesn't say that. So Genesis 1-1 starts with darkness. Pretty quickly, Abraham's making covenant with God in the dark and being asked to look at the stars in the sky Soon after that, his grandson, Jacob, is seeing a ladder full of angels in a night vision. And soon after that is wrestling a man by a riverbank who hurts him, but also gives him a new name and a way to go forward. Moses on Sinai. Isaiah in his cave. All you're going to have to do is fill in what I'm missing. It's not Isaiah, it's Elijah. It's Elijah in the cave who waits to, to find God in all the loud and noisy things and finds God in the silence instead. Now, those are a lot of Hebrew Bible things. Did any of the rest of you, whenever I ask a group, I come up with more things that happen in the dark. Hmm? Gideon, absolutely, the trumpet in the dark, still in the Hebrew Bible. Job, did you hear the reading this morning, those of you who went to 9 o'clock? If you didn't, you'll hear it at 11. I wanted to preach on that so badly, but I couldn't figure out any way to cheer you up, talking about God. <laughs> I'm not going to cheer you up much as it is, but um, the Job passage about looking everywhere for God in the dark and, and staying in the dark. Um, Job's, for some of us, one of the most comforting books in the Bible because it says, should you too find yourself in a dark cloud, you're not alone. The one other sinless man in the Bible was there as well. Nativity? Right? You know, I guess it's, it's no mistake, literarily or otherwise, narratively, that those stories require darkness, whether it's angels in the sky over the shepherds or magi. I just don't imagine them coming during the day, do you? I just don't. It never, it, I don't know why. I don't know. They're, yeah, it's got to be night. Oh, the star. It's the star. That's why we. Yeah. <laughs> so they require some darkness, right? And again, even if that you know, plays into uh, John's lightening the darkness, it's still, these are stories that, oh, Exodus, had it ever really dawned on you? It never dawned on me, the Red Sea parted at night, that if that last night was the night in which the firstborn of Egypt were decimated, that that, that was the time of escape. Manna fell from the sky at night. The Psalms, full of them, uh-huh. Yes, and the assumption there is that 
that's the place that God is found, right? Yeah, not only God, not only place, but it's certainly the place that makes that finding vivid. Okay, get, yes, sir. That's right. I, I, I think more than Matthew's gospel, but certainly Matthew's gospel, the, the whole, everything goes dark, right? For three hours, is that right? I'm teaching the gospels, I should know this, but it's three, three hours. And then certainly you've got that Gethsemane scene that happens in the dark, right? Jesus' own, he's got, not so much about the 40 days in the dark, but Gethsemane's dark, that's a dark time. But it's also a time, again, a time we're allowed to pray not to have, lead us not into temptation, but a time that was seminal, transformative, I think, in his decision to go, go ahead. We've made the point well enough. I'm not going near the book of Revelation. <laughs> but I think that passages like those um, are the ones that uh, strengthen my resolve to look into darkness with a little more open heart and see if there weren't more there than just what I fear. Um, my relationship with the dark, and now I start to do a little bit of material that's in the book, um, it shifted really for me physically before it shifted intellectually or spiritually for me. Um, in retrospect, one of the best decisions I ever made was to work as a cocktail waitress during my three years in seminary. <laughs> I worked at a place called Dante's Down the Hatch, I kid you not. <laughs> It was a nightclub in underground Atlanta that featured, is anybody ever there in the old days, underground Atlanta? Yeah, two-story pirate ship, am I right? Inside was a, a jazz combo that played till the wee hours, but those of you with your hands up, testify. With a real water moat around the ship and live caimans in it, so that when you came in, you, could, you weren't allowed to feed them, but you could see the caimans slithering around in there. And then if you decided not to go in the pirate ship and hear the jazz, there was a bar where just sort of the neighborhood hoo-hahs would um, come and sit and tell their troubles all night long. So that's where I worked in the summers during the three years that I was at Yale Divinity School. I'd go up there and do that, and then I would come home and work at Dante's Down the Hatch. Um, every night walking past um, the Caymans in their little lagoon and a great big stalagmite candle that had been made by piling votive candle on votive candle and the bartender over there topping up the bottles, I inhaled the aroma of alcohol, candle, and reptile that became the kind of signal that my workday was about to begin. Um, over those three years, I learned how to carry drinks on a tray above my head without running into patrons on their ways to the bathroom. I learned how to replenish the fuel under a hot cheese fondue pot without setting my sleeve on fire. I made extraordinarily good money for the 1970s, $60 a night cash on a bad night, 100 on a good. Um, and for three years, this arrangement put an interesting edge on my theological education. <laughs> During the days of the school year, I took classes in things like ontology, ecclesiology, eschatology, in which I was um, excellently asked to invite to, I was invited to order my thoughts about the nature of being human and the purpose of human community and the future of humankind, a very light place. Um, on summer nights at Dante's, I dealt with businessmen who used me to prove how much power they had over people who made less money than they did. I served drinks to tourists who drank so much that when the bill finally came and they three of them took three of them to focus on the bill enough to figure out what was on it they looked at me like I was pressing a gun to their ribs like I had made up what they had drunk I learned that people will confess things to a stranger in a nightclub they have never admitted to anyone by the light of day 
because I think I was the least significant person they knew, such people would tell me things they should have been telling a doctor or a judge <laughs> or a psychiatrist or a lawyer. Um, ironically, and I hope you hear this exactly the good way I intended, I wouldn't hear such stories again for years until as a young priest I became a different kind of stranger to people who had no one else to tell their stories to. Um, there were also endearing customers, a Catholic priest who came every Friday night in his clerical collar, never ordered food, always ordered best wine from the top of the wine list, and let me know quickly that if I would simply keep his glass clean, bring him a fresh one every 20 minutes or so, I'd get a 25% tip. <laughs> there were also first dates and honeymooners and couples celebrating anniversaries whose clear enjoyment just spilled over on everyone. So I don't know. Dante's was a place of dark and light, you know, where, where both had their place. But all these years later, I like to think that I learned as much about human nature in underground as I did um, in the Ivy League. Uh, one of those perhaps had more dark and one more light. But together, I would say now they offered me a better education in the divine mystery than I could have gotten from either one of them alone. Sometimes years later, when I stood in front of an altar waving at incense, I would remember standing in front of the bar at Dante's <laughs> waving cigarette smoke. <laughs> and in some ways, the exact same feeling of tenderness would come over me because the people in both places were deep down so much alike, looking for company, looking for meaning, looking for solace and even self-forgetfulness. Whether we ever found those things in either place or not, it was the seeking somehow that brought us together even when we had nothing else in common. Um, later still, I moved to a big city, to the farm where I live now with Ed, which is how I began uh, experimenting literally with learning to walk in the dark. Um, it took a while even to consider the possibility because I had come from 25 years in a big city and I had default settings that made it very dangerous to walk in the dark alone, especially as a woman alone. I locked my car doors at night though the nearest neighbors lived a quarter mile away, and the worst arrest reports in the newspaper were failure to pay child support and broken taillights. I took a flashlight when I went with me down to the barn every night, not far, um, though on nights with full moons it soon became apparent to me, you Eagle Scouts, that the beam of the light actually narrowed my vision instead of expanding it. If I would turn off the light, I could see more than I could see with the light on. Eventually, it occurred to me it was time to tinker with those default settings, that if I paid attention to where I was, it might be time to readjust my fear of things I no longer needed to fear, those inside me as well as outside me. So I started going out after dark without a light, which is why I wear opaque stockings now. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. There are so many dings and dents because I had a whole lot of lessons to learn at the literal level, like the guy whose ankle I almost broke. Um, big metaphorical lesson, slow down, you move too fast. Um, another one, pay attention to exactly where you are now or you will never get where you're going. There were some accidents that weren't entirely my fault. <laughs> One night I went down to collect the eggs from the hen house. I like to do that in the dark too. No moon that night, just stars, but stars were enough. And I knew the place completely by heart. I always go in and say, hello ladies, and they rustle around up on their roosts, and then I reach in their boxes to get the eggs. I picked up three with one hand, two with the other. I left the shed. I aimed back toward the house. I knew right where it was, only stars, but still. 
Um, I remembered the image of that broad lawn in my mind. There's another lesson coming up. Moments later, I was lying on the ground because someone had left a, a load of lumber on the broad lawn that afternoon that was not on my remembered map. The miracle was I somehow went over it and landed on my elbows, <laughs> and the eggs remained unbroken so that I... So there came a new lesson, take nothing for granted. Every walk in the dark calls for your fresh attention. Um, So why would you want to walk in the dark when you could carry a flashlight instead? Again, we're on the literal level, but play with me metaphorically. Um, Here's some reasons, because most of us move too quickly. Not all of us, but a lot of us move very quickly. And a lovely bonus of walking in the dark is you can't rush. You slow down. Number two, I don't know what you'll think about this one, a lot of our defenses don't work as well in the dark. Our sight, 70% of how we take the world in and defend ourselves, is shut down so that our knowledge of where we are moves into other senses with which we are not as well defended. But that means, I think, that new revelation can sometimes reach us with less resistance even if it's the revelation you can find your way in the summer by where the smell of honeysuckle is coming from. Three, it's hugely encouraging, even at the physical level, to discover how much you really can learn about where you are, even if you don't know where you're going. And four, this is new on my list, because the soul is a shy deer that runs from the high beam of the hunter. If you want to commune with yours for a while, a dark yard is a better bet than a bright spotlight. So I don't think I have to press the metaphor, but learning to walk in the literal dark has helped me walk in the God dark as well. Because I trusted the changes on the farm in what was moving in my physical relationship with the dark, I decided to push on and see if there were some new places I could go in my spirit as well. Um, Were any of my new skills transferable? What might a spirituality for the night times look like? You have to read the book. (laughs) Teachers of this way can be really hard to find. That's one thing I found out. I had to look far and wide, because while solar spirituality was dominant, especially in the south where I live, there was a lunar theme, a little minor lunar theme. We just named some of the stories where that minor lunar theme shows up. Nobody's particularly comfortable in those stories, but it's where things happen. Um, But there are some things, I think, that a spirituality of the nighttime has going for it. And in advance of those of you who haven't read the book, I will tell you that it doesn't thrive on dividing reality up into opposing pairs. A spirituality of nighttime does, I think, what God does in Genesis, blesses light and dark, blesses day and night, blesses sun and moon. Um, It does not offer a clearly marked path. I think that's a reason it's a minor theme. Um, It pretty much points a direction, uh, spirituality for nighttime, and invites you to take a journey. Uh, Most troublesome of all, though, especially if any of you have read the Christian mystics, or the mystics of any tradition, frankly, is that they often sound a little out of their minds. They sound a little daft, as if there are no words that can adequately describe what they have (laughs) discovered about the divine in the dark. Um, Some of you know that Jalaluddin Rumi is one of my favorites. He was actually the favorite of the entire United States for about two years when the poetry of Rumi was the best-selling poetry book. 
Look at, a lot of you are nodding, so you know. So maybe you know this one, translated by Coleman Barks, who's one of my Georgian neighbors. It's called The Guest House. Here's a teacher about the spirituality of the night. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. I could read that three more times. We just go home, but I'll finish up and then we can talk. Um, here are some things to like about a spirituality for the nighttime, but only for me, maybe. There are no street corner evangelists on this way, as far as I can tell. A spirituality of the night, never going to sell. Um, it has a built-in theological humility to it that cannot be communicated in a loud voice. It just can't. It can also soften you up. If you are a loner, like I am, who has a hard time asking for help, reaching out for some reason seems to be easier in the dark. Am I right? Um, and you can think of a dark hospice room, but you can also think amorous darkness. There's something easier. There's a reason we close our eyes when we kiss. Um, Another thing I like about this path is that no one can walk it for you. People can walk it with you, but no one can take a walk in the dark for you. That is a kind of solo, outward bound of the soul. Another reason I think it will never be very popular. To discover who might walk this way with you, really all you have to do is start asking. It also seems to me, and this is hugely important since I teach college students, that a spirituality for the night times is less vulnerable to collapse than full solar spirituality, if only because it doesn't promise so much in the first place. When it's dark, it's dark. This is to be expected. When the way ahead is hard to see, if you learn how to walk in the dark, this is part of the program. It may be, in fact, a sign that you're on the right path. Best of all, a spirituality for the night times, as I said, doesn't divide reality into warring armies with everything light on one side and everything dark on the other. It was Alexander Solonitsyn who wrote in the Gulag Archipelago, If only it were so simple. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Welcome them all. A spirituality for the night times knows the full contents of the human heart. Against all odds, it trusts that the line between dark and light is a moving line, with every day turning to night at some point, the same way that every night turns into day. This can't be proved at the level of a human life quite the way it can be proved in nature, though I find it sometimes helps to talk to someone who lives at one of the poles, 
where mourning can be a really long time coming, and not everyone lives to see it. But mostly people live to see the light return. And what more can any of us ask than mostly? The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Thomas More wrote a book called uh, The Dark Night of the Soul. I don't know. There are a number of books out with that title. But he was the one who reminded me that if you believe you are undergoing a dark night of the soul, that is not and has never been a sign that something is wrong. I always thought it was. I always thought if you hit a dark night of the soul, it meant you were in trouble with God. And he reminded me that the saints and mystics through the ages have said, oh no, that just means the God of the dark cloud has invited you in and thinks you can handle it. At least if you're willing to give up everything you think you know about who God is and should be according to your plan. Um, He also said this, the best way, this is Thomas More, to deal with a dark night of the soul is to be made luminous, to be made luminous by it. Not enlightened, but translucent. You are in this dark night, not the eye that can see in the dark. You are the candle being burnt for its luminosity. So, one more reason it won't sell. But also I think it is the real promise of walking in the dark, our capacity for being light in this world, not as an enemy of the dark, but as its consummation, its partner, if you will, its friend. This being human is a guest house, after all, and every morning is a new arrival. To be human is to live by light and dark, sun and moon, with anxiety and delight. It is to admit limits. It is to transcend limits, to fall down and rise up. Those of us who want a life with only half of these things in it, we only want half a life shutting the other half away where it won't interfere with our bright fantasies of the way things ought to be. Better to find the kind of courage, I think, to open the door every morning and meet whoever's there laughing. That's my faith statement for today, okay? It's a... a, It's a, a taste of the book, and any of you have read, have any of you read a little book I'm just finishing by Christian Wyman called My Bright Abyss? He's a professor at Yale, yeah. If he, I mean, he's the one who's reminding me, this is wonderful, Barbara. If he'd listen, he'd say, that is so wonderful until you're really dying, you know, until it's really, really, you're into the, the end of darkness. And then he wouldn't diss this, but he would say it looks different, and it would be wonderful to say this is a faith statement, and this is, you know sort of my athletic program for um, becoming more open to, um, to part of all of life, including the end of life. So I'm, I'm also easily chastened about anything I've said, so you get to have at me now for 15 minutes. <laughs> I limited the amount of time you have to get, to get at me, but I hope what I've said is true. I won't know until I, too, am in a ditch, worse than the ones I've been in. Yes?
It's a great question. Yeah, it's a wonderful question because I worried about the same thing. Most of the stuff I write is very, age, you know, it's context, context, context. So it's always about the age I'm at. It's why, by the way, I started writing first-person narrative is that was as big as my truth claim could get was I. And I thought if anybody else said, oh, me too, that that was up to you. But you, you say me too to some of it based on, yeah, life stage of life. So I expected young people... Uh, to have a hard time with this, but I've been surprised. Last week, I, you know, met a bunch of 16-year-olds uh, who came to the University of Richmond and said, "I have been waiting for this." So, I think the answer to your question is, it just depends on which young people you're talking about. And what I have found is that some have come out of much more traumatic. Uh, lives than I ever came out of. They have come through darkness I know not of, and there are ways in which all the language, light of Christ, you know, solar spirituality is a life preserver, and they, and they are in the process of forming faith that they hope will bear their weight, and they, they have no use for this and should have no use. But there are others, including a few of those, who have experienced quite a lot of dark in their life, whatever they mean by that, and have been told that their inability to sort of get over that quickly means they don't have enough faith. In other words, they've been set upon by people who are so solar in their Christian faith that they have almost kind of blamed the victims. You know, the people who are like Job, who say, I've looked left and right. Did you know that's a goof on Psalm 139, by the way? When Job says, you know, I've been up to the heavens and you aren't there. I've been down to Sheol and you aren't there either. So, you know, students who've had that experience of really feeling lost in the dark, the minute you say to them, do you know that's a divine place too? It's like, the whole universe. Yeah. Look. I didn't sign up. Yeah, 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 and yeah, and and there are again different Christian formula, different religious formula for for what you do when you get something you didn't sign up for. And at least Rumi says, really challengingly, open the door. Yeah. And, and I think for a lot of others, it's lock the door, bolt the door, put a wedge in the door, and get everybody you can behind you to lean on the door. And you can, tr you can try that for a while, but you, know, you get to a certain age and you realize that that didn't work either. That, that, that in some cases, as Solzhenitsyn said, the trouble's on this side of the door. You know, and there's no barring the door. Sir? Yeah. You know what? And you are the only person with the wisdom to know that. Because I write with an eye, I hand out a metaphor, and there are no instructions for how many of these pills to take. You know, or, or to call me in the morning. So what I like to do is roll out the metaphor, and then when people say what you said, I say, Amen. You know, you heard the metaphor, you have got feet under this, you have thought about it. Um, I'm, I'm often speaking to people unlike you who've not thought as much about it. But, you know, given what you said about moon and sun, I will point out something. I don't know if you've been Christian all your life, but Jews and Muslims live on a lunar calendar. And their days begin when the sun goes down, and their festivals are on the 13-month calendar instead of the 12-month lunar. And it is, it's another interesting little thing that has to do you know, to, to add in to the natural human fear of the dark, and maybe even theological concern about the dark. But there's not a thing wrong with what you're saying to me. So, 
you, you may now be comfortable again and say, this, this woman wrote this whole book on it and said, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, I just don't think anybody else can tell you how to walk this walk. I really don't. Or whether you should walk it. Or Some people say to me, well, what are you trying to say I should do? And I say, well, if you're interested, if this sounds helpful at all, and you can only stay about two seconds in the presence of something that strikes you as very dark, stay three seconds. That's all the book's saying. And then get the hell out of there. Because there's something in you that says you don't have the resources to do this. Or you need company. Or this walk is not your walk. You've got a different walk. You know, you grew up with enough of this. You, you have a different... It's just... I, I wish I could write a how-to book. I, I ended up on the how-to list on the New York Times. I spent two weeks there. I was between Wheat Belly and the Daniel Plan. <laughs> Wheat Belly and the Daniel... They put me on the how-to list. You know, and I think it's because those are the books... Again, the popular books are that just tell me what to do. Either so I can do it or I can argue with you about doing it. So I, um, I'm just still working on having three points or five and a program and a workbook that you can buy for $14.95 and I'll give you some sugar pills to take with it if that'll help. But I'd, I, um, I hope you hear me honoring your um, comment back to me, which is there's no program here. There, there are lives in which light and dark take different um, Places have different impact, have different histories, have different roots on them. And um, all I, I suppose if I have a campaign, it's that I was so raised to fear the dark and to think that nothing good happened there. And yet every time I looked at a timeline of my life, the place where I grew in soul, in depth, were usually the darker times of my life. So once I'd looked at that, I couldn't, I just couldn't argue with it. That the places I least wanted to go were the places where I drew closest to other people, where I reached out to people more, where the divine had an easier time to get to me, and I came out, coming out is crucial, <laughs> and I came out a little bit better able to be with other people who had been there. You know, so that was just the evidence that bumped me into considering I might be able to stay a second longer than I thought, but it's not your, it's not your, it's not your life graph. It's the one I drew. Who else? Yes, sir. Oh. Not having seen the play, sure, that sounds like what I do. I mean, I'm serious. It sounds, it sounds like what I do, and I allow myself to do that. There, there are times, again, my husband's sitting here, when uh, he, he tries to show me the picture of the Syrian refugees in Time Magazine, and I say, I can't look right now. I can look later, but right now, that is so, so, so all over me. I can't look right now. Uh, I, I like a... Uh, Sapphire Bombay Martini up with two olives, please. <laughs> you know that I, I, there, I'm, I, I'm, sure, it's exactly right. And, and again, my only monitor for myself is what happens then when I cannot be in the dark. You know, when it's just, a, it's just like a, you know, a light. It's like a warning light to say, careful now, because that can become such a numbed out place to stay. You don't want to stay there all the time either. That's what I mean about this rhythm of the dark and light and day and night. I honor that enough at the physical level to trust it at a spiritual level. But sure, you think? You do it too, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, count the gadgets in your, in your bedroom at night. Yes, sir. 
Yeah. Only 13 floors. Oh, here? Uh-huh. Oh, no 13 floors. Now they do kind of. Yeah, and there are no 666 hotel rooms. Did you notice that? At least in the South, you're not going to stay in room 666. So on the 13th floor, no, it wouldn't be that. <laughs> yeah, and he's asking a great question, too. Uh, when I was at the University of Richmond last week, this great guy got up, and he said, why do you assume we know how to walk in the light? <laughs> I think he was clergy, but I, th I thought that was you know, that was a wonderful kind of question. But it, and it also brought up the idea: Do you know you can be blinded by the light? Do you know that? It's an interesting thing. We always talk about being blinded by the dark, but if you're playing with this metaphor, it's also possible, you know, to think about how how am I sometimes blinded by the light, and not only by the dark? Who else? I can't answer the question about the 13th floors. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and so much of that see was private. There's a real intimacy uh, in Luke's gospel, especially. He's very often going off to pray on a mountain alone, which means even Peter, James, and John don't get to come. So there's nobody to tell a story. And so those are largely out of our view, but it's wonderful to imagine those nights because we at least know they were right that that he goes off alone to pray, often near dark. Um, and so, but see, you use this phrase again, I'm no fool that I pay attention to, which is, and he came out. Oh, I guess you could go all the way to the tomb, couldn't you? Because see, I kind of get to Good Friday and say, and don't forget, you know, that there was, there was that time when the coming out took an entirely different um, shape. But since you got me on a roll with resurrection, and I love to tell people, and whatever happened in that tomb, that was a dark cloud of unknowing. Nobody was there. All these witnesses to the resurrection, I'm sorry, they saw him after you know, whatever that was that happened was entirely intimate. That was his most intimate dark place. But yeah, that's, that's the challenge. It's why I started off with Bible stories. Sort of when you've got a limited lifetime, you start listening to the stories of other people and the sacred texts that say, here are some things that are true. You want to trust them or not? Try them out. See. We've got time for maybe one more. And then don't go to church. My advice is don't go to church. It's a really gloomy gospel lesson today. <laughs> and it's just, you know, if you went at nine, am I right? It's just really hard. I know, it's really hard. I want to kind of apologize at 11 and say, I'm sorry, this is such a gloomy lesson. But, yes. Okay, well, I did the best. I tried to cheer it up at the end, yeah. This week is just, I mean, I mean for, uh, my experience is, is limited. I'm in a little rural college where um, it's hard to get students to even listen to national news. So there's, you know, they live in a bubble of Twitter and 
you know, things, things come across their screens. I'm not, I'm not dissing them at all. But one, one response I have is they don't have anything to compare a lot of this to. This has been, you know, last time I polled them on how old they were at 9-11, at, at they were four, I think. I mean, this, was, uh, this has been their whole lives of security checkpoints and things. So in a way, those of us who have memories of other times are suffering a kind of angst that, you know, they have angst because you've got children and you know, and it's things like the elders can't help a whole lot. Like, I always get asked, so what's the answer for the Christian church? Well, I just don't know. Ask me on Thursday, you know. But I, I, young people all the time will say, what should we be doing differently? I say, you're going to have to think this up. But I think it works with a the theme because there are long periods of unknowing. There are long periods of unknowing when you, when you don't know what's next. Um, and, and there is a waiting in that that can become absolutely paralyzing if you need it to resolve in your lifetime. I mean, I hate to point out how often in the Bible, the people who went into the wilderness were not the people who came out. It was their children. You know, so there's a way in which a lot of us are so focused on our lifetimes that we need it to get better now. But to look at the history of the world, it's to see times when things did get incredibly better, sometimes nonviolently, quickly, but a lot of other times when it took centuries, you know, to come through a place of not knowing what would happen next. So I wish I, I had an answer on that one. But I do know, I have trust in some things, uh, like community, um, like common meals, like um, reliable places of encounter with divine that can clear people's heads and wake them up again to where they are. So uh, I have as much worry about technology for my age and any age and the ways in which we live in front of light boxes so much of the time. Uh, not least of which my time's up because they convinced me I can know everything if I can just find the right website. I kind of, you know, I, I think unknowing doesn't have much of a chance right now in this age of knowing, but I, um, I so honor this church. Every time I come here, I, I'm reminded again um, why I wanted to be part of a community like this to begin with. So I thank you for the time, for the invitation, um, and I hope you know how richly blessed you are to um, be here um, with Luis and with one another. Thank you for asking me.